I wasn't savvy enough at times to actually like remember a different first name. So I used to use Jeff a lot and Kevin, which is my middle name. Like, because like you literally have to try to react to the names when someone says it to you. And if you don't remember like what first fake name you're playing with and someone says like, hey, Kenny, and you don't react, it's kind of like telling, right? So sometimes it would just be easier to use like your real first name. You're listening to Risk of Ruin. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 31, Blackjack Legacy. I'm going to try to start this episode at the beginning of the story, like the very beginning. So 60 years ago, there was a professor at MIT at Thorpe who had an idea that you could win at blackjack using math. So he used a very early computer to analyze the game, and he proved that his intuition was right. Then he published an academic paper about card counting and wrote the book, Beat the Dealer. But my favorite part of the story is that Thorpe spent months working on the math behind card counting, and he made some casino trips to prove that it could actually be done, and then he basically gave up card counting. Or, to put it another way, The first guy that discovered card counting was also the first guy to burn out on card counting. To be fair, he moved on to bigger and better things, so you can't really blame him for not wanting to sit in dirty casinos grinding blackjack. Even though Ed Thorpe was more interested in the theory than the practice of card counting, he inspired a bunch of people to pick up where he left off. These were the practitioners, the people that turned card counting into a craft. One of the groups that professionalized card counting was also at MIT. The first MIT blackjack teams got together in the late 70s and then existed in various configurations for a number of years. Over a couple of decades, they won millions from casinos, but this group would have been just a single chapter in advantage play history, i.e. a small part of a very niche topic that essentially no one cares about, if not for the fact that one of the MIT blackjack team members told his story to the writer Ben Mesrick. From there, it became a best-selling book, Bringing Down the House, and later the movie, 21. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. There it is. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yeah, try it. I had heard it at least 14 times that night. I couldn't lose. First of all, what I was doing wasn't illegal. There were certain institutions and people that frown upon it, but it's legal. And not everyone can do it. Just those with gifted minds. I have a gifted mind. That's what got me into all this. I should also say that 21 was a pretty big movie. It made $160 at the box office. But in the context of this podcast, the much bigger deal is that there are working Advantage players today that cite the movie as the thing that got them into card counting. Their stories go roughly, I saw 21, then went on the internet to see if it was bullshit, and discovered that card counting is real. This is Jeff Ma. He's the MIT card counter that told the story, which later became the movie. There were some members of my fraternity that were leaving every summer, every, every weekend during the summer to go play. And, and predominantly, they were, you know, Foxwoods had just opened and um, had somewhat of a beatable game. I know that Atlantic City was a place that we went to early on. So I think it was like the Taj Mahal and um resorts maybe were some of the ones that they were playing and um then there was like some um 
casinos in Puerto Rico, like Condada Plaza, those types of things. Those were like the casinos that the people before me played. When I really started playing, it was like Mirage in Vegas. That was like the the you know the the best of the best casinos, and they actually like had the best game, meaning best cut card, and and took the action really well. Um, I think we had a lot of respect for the Steve Wynn properties at that time because they took the action well, um, specifically Mirage and and you know Treasure Island to some extent. I mean Treasure Island was still pretty new at that point. You know I I actually played a lot during my like formative years at the Stardust. So that kind of tells you how long ago this was. And I was one of the few people that had like a relatively long life at the Stardust. And I just kind of got in there so well that I was able to play there. Their game wasn't great, but because I was able to play, it was it was like a reasonable place to kind of like hole out and stay away from like the main the main world of the, you know, the strip casinos. Vegas was the only place really that took the action over a long period of time, particularly well. I mean, Foxwoods took it pretty well in different spurts. I mean, Foxwood had Foxwoods had a lot of different acts as a casino for us to play in. Early on, it became bad really quickly. Then I think Mohegan Sun opening kind of made it a little bit more competitive and it became a very playable game. And then it kind of it just went back and forth. I, I, I mean, I, I, I remember a couple of different times where I played um, a reasonable amount of Foxwoods and you would kind of hear like, oh, Foxwoods game is beatable now. And so we drive down and play. Some blackjack teams are really just bankroll sharing operations. They don't cooperate inside the casino. But the MIT team is known for using call-ins and big players. When we first started doing like call-ins, they hadn't really seen call-ins in a while. It's not like call-ins were... And call-ins, just so people understand, are a spotter sits at a table or stands behind a table. They're either playing table minimum or not even playing at all. They're counting. As soon as the count gets good, they signal to a big player to come over. They pass the count off to the big player with some, usually a word, right? And it's like, there's a code word that we use. They might not even like, look at the big player. They might just say something to the dealer, like, hey, do you know anywhere where they sell magazines around here? And magazine means um, 17. Um, and so, you know, they, they because 17 was a magazine back in the day. It's just weird to even think that that was what we use for these, for these words. But anyway, so Collins were something that I think were definitely prevalent back in like Kenny Houston's day and whatnot, but they just hadn't seen them in a while. So I think we had like a pretty good time. Like it was just good timing for us to start doing the Collin game. And I'd say for the first couple of years, Collins worked really well. And then they started to really catch on to them and, and to some degree, like look for Mitchu entry or no, no Mitchu entry. And then all of a sudden we, you know, we had to like vary our game up. So I think like as we more and more time passed, we started to vary our game that we were doing call-ins or we would do a shoe game and a shoe game. Again, like if you think about all these different games, there's different betting progressions. Like in a shoe game, you're betting a lot at, and you're, you're not, you're usually betting a lot more at the end of the shoe. Colin, you're betting a lot when you jump in. And then if you do like cuts or, you know, something like that, or, you know, NRS or, you know, like shuffle tracking, you're, again, you're, you can vary what your betting pattern looks like. And that's sort of like the best way to keep them off your scent. You can even do things like betting big off the top of a, of a shoe when you know that's about a 50 50 uh, percentile to say, you know, just to cost you a little bit, but it, it, it does look better than dropping your bet a ton at the beginning of the shoe. We could probably make an entire episode just about APs and their identity. 
Sometimes APs need lots of names because there's a promotion where it helps to have lots of accounts. And then other times they need lots of names because the one on their birth certificate is toast as far as casinos go. You didn't need IDs back then. All you did needed was a name, uh, sorry, a, a, a name and a, and a birth date. And, you know, they didn't ask for ID at all. And that's all you need to get a player's card. Sometimes they would ask you like a social security number, but like you literally could write anything down. Um, but eat tip because they, they were just, I don't even know why they would ask for that. Cause they weren't like running CTRs or anything like that, but just, yeah, basically just name and birthday, which was all they needed, which is crazy to think about now. My sense is that recreational players see blackjack as this monolithic thing. It's like blackjack is blackjack. Who cares if it pays three to two or six to five, who cares if they offer surrender or if the dealer stands on 17 and who could possibly care where the cut card is. For a recreational player, it's like you either win or you lose the hand. That's it. Keep it simple, stupid. To see that I'm right about this, just walk through a Las Vegas pit. You'll see tables with terrible rules and tourists waiting in line to play. But all of the details matter to advantage players. The details affect the edge of the game. And not only that, but card counters also have to worry about how the whole thing looks. How much do their bets stick out? A lot of those casinos, especially the strip casinos, had like 10K limits on the floor. So like later on, we would play like MGM quite a bit. Um, We played the Rio. The Rio like kind of came back and had like a really good game for a while. Caesars had a reasonable game for a while. And on the floor, a lot of these would be 10K limits um, in in these bigger Vegas casinos. You know, like if, if I would pretty much never hop into high limit, um, we kind of always believed that in double deck, there was the opportunity for them to, you know, kind of shuffle when they wanted to, if they didn't have a cut card. And often in double deck, you're, that can vary so much in one shoe or in one hand that it's not like a, it's just kind of a, a little bit of a challenge. The big card counting teams played over years and the team would pool their bankroll, which meant that the bets could get very large. Just imagine playing two hands of 10,000. If you end up with some doubles and splits, you could have fifty or sixty thousand dollars on the felt. In Vegas, we could get up to two hands of ten thousand. That was pretty rare. Our unit um, varied anywhere from say eight hundred to fifteen hundred would be what I would say that our our, our unit ended up typically being. Um, and so, like, if you're betting two hands of ten thousand, you know, you need a a true of like seven to get to like 10,000 or whatever, or true of eight, I guess, to get to 10,000. Then if you want to bet that much money, you're not going to just write the casino a personal check. High rollers can wire money to the cage or get a marker, but that's kind of tough if you're playing under a fake name. So the team has to have ways to turn cash into chips. Well, you had to CTR anything over 10,000, but they allowed you to do like 10,000 at the cage, 10,000 at the table, and like 10,000 in money plays. And they also just wouldn't question if you produce chips out of like thin air. So you would often just keep chips from trip to trip. So, you know, you would hope that in your first trip you won, and then you'd have like a reasonable reason for having a bunch of chips. And so you could over time like accrue chips at a place. And you could even put chips on deposit. Card counting tends to be the gateway drug for advantage players. And it also provides the basis for other advantages. Shuffle tracking relies on the same basic idea that you can get an edge by knowing where the high and low cards are located after the shuffle. There were all sorts of levels of, of skills 
everything from being able to like simply back count to, you know, being able to like sit in spot to, you know, being able to play like a big player game. And then obviously there was, you know, play people that were like big players, but couldn't count. Um, but then, yeah, there were cuts, um, like thin cuts, you know, and then there was shuffle tracking. You know, I, I actually did a fair amount of shuffle tracking um, through re- because there was a short time or maybe like a year where both the MGM and um, the Rio had super trackable shuffles where it was, you know, really easy to to do shuffle tracking. They were, you know, you basically knew that three quarters of a deck from the previous shuffle would end up into one and a half decks in the next shuffle. The MIT team is probably the best known card counting crew, but there were others. So Jeff and his teammates would run into the usual suspects on the circuit. You know, there was like a crew of people that you could recognize um, on any big fight weekend or big, you know, Super Bowl or um, really fights in Super Bowl. And then you'd even run into them in like some other locations where people had found out there was like a very beatable game, like, you know, Shreveport, Louisiana, or like Lake Charles had a beatable game for a while. So yeah, so it'd be just, it'd be just funny. It'd be like running into someone at like a work networking event. AP teams are also low-key logistics operations. It takes time and money to get people to the casino. Those expenses are the first drag on profits. We did try to recoup some of the um, expenses and travel with comps. Um, where we actually would, um, you know, try to get first class tickets comped, um, and, you know, often wouldn't really fly first class. We would return the first class tickets and that was like straight EV or whatever we'd call it. It probably sounds odd that being part of a gambling team could prepare you for the working world, but consider that AP teams are basically small businesses. They have accounting. Sometimes they have investors. And most importantly, they require the ability to get along with others. I mean, at the time, the thing that I enjoyed most about playing was sort of the camaraderie, the idea of like being part of a team, flying to Vegas to beat the man. I always talk about like how when you go to Vegas, the flight out there, everyone's super excited. You know, back in the day, people would be like drinking, whooping it up, playing cards on the on the plane. And then the flight home is the opposite. Everyone's like super tired and sad and they lost money. And, you know, I always like was felt great that we were one of the few people that were happier when we left than when we got there to some degree because we had won. Um, So the camaraderie aspect of it, I really, really enjoyed the teamwork aspect of it, the entrepreneurial aspect of it. I miss that more than anything else. At the top of the show, I said that Ed Thorpe wrote Beat the Dealer and then pretty quickly gave up card counting. Actually, if you look up the membership of the Blackjack Hall of Fame, it's like a who's who of gamblers that started out counting cards and then moved on to other stuff, like options trading or horse racing or plays in the casino with bigger edges. The people who can grind away forever counting cards are a special breed. So there was definitely a a division on the team of like people that were sort of like blackjack lifers and people that um, would never have made blackjack their full-time job. I fell into like the latter category where I don't think I would ever made blackjack my full-time job. And, you know, my good friends, the people that brought me in were more blackjack lifers. And so as, you know, we kept playing, ultimately 
that caused a, a riff that ent- you know eventually ended the team as I knew it, um, and we kind of went our separate ways. I never felt comfortable with blackjack being the only thing I did, and you know even when I was the heyday when I was playing a lot. I was like working in startups and trying to learn and I was like coaching water polo at MIT and I what I believe that blackjack did for me which was so powerful is it made me enough money that I didn't really need to worry about how much money I made in my day job so I could work at startups or I could coach water polo at MIT and so it was kind of like a great gift but it was a it was a means to an end versus the end I also just saw like people getting burnt out over time and you know ultimately like the blackjack life advantage play life and kind of like always trying to find you know st- an edge is it's it's exhausting to some degree and I I don't know like I think there are people that are comfortable with that as a life and for me for whatever reason I I was never comfortable with that as my life. We'll come back to blackjack but for now let's move on. We're always interested in how the gambling informs everything else. And Jeff has had an entire career in tech. Yeah, I mean, I graduated from MIT in 1994. And so, you know, that was right around when the whole Al Gore inventing the internet, DARPA, whatever thing happened. And, uh, you know, we had the first versions of the internet at MIT. Like we had our own sort of internal network called Athena. And we had our own like instant messaging called Zwrite. And so like, yeah, I mean, a couple of the guys that were in my fraternity were some of the ones that started a company that was literally one of the first internet startups and they were building, you know, websites for like Starwave and all these types of um, like ESPN's first website and all like, yeah. So there was a ton of that formative internet stuff happening around me. And so I, I, when I graduated from MIT, I moved to Chicago and I was a trader on the Chicago board of options exchange. And that was sort of like the most natural progression from blackjack into the real world. And, what I realized is I didn't like particularly like finance. And I kind of came back to Boston, one, because I wanted to you know play a more active role in the blackjack stuff, but also because I wanted to be around all of this sort of like stuff that was happening in the internet. And I didn't have a particular skill to be, you know, I wasn't a programmer. I hadn't studied computer science. Um, I was a mechanical engineering major that wanted to go to medical school. So I wasn't uniquely qualified to do any of this stuff. And so I actually went and took a 40-hour-a-week intensive programming class at Harvard um, one summer that made it so that I could program. And I went and worked as a you know programmer for uh, one of my buddies' companies that was just doing straight-up web consulting, building systems for you know big banks and things like that. And that's kind of what springboarded me into my life as an entrepreneur. In hindsight, the early days of the internet seemed both wildly over-optimistic and also completely pedestrian. For example, one of the casualties of the dot-com bust was Webvan, which was doing grocery delivery just way too early. And then there was other stuff that was just a phone book on the internet. And it seems boring or stupid, except I haven't heard anybody use the word yellow pages in 25 years, so I guess it was ultimately pretty successful. But when the internet started, no one really knew where the opportunities would be. So I think in the early days, there was definitely a lot of like, we're just going to put this online kind of thing. Like we built a, you know, uh, like there was the, the one, one company that I worked for called Interdimensions was a bunch of MIT guys a couple of years younger than me who literally just knew how to build stuff on the web and were pretty brilliant programmers. And, you know, more or less 
nothing that I tell you that they did will seem that interesting or that we did was that interesting. Like we were building, we built like this big, like language, like multi-language, multi-localization website for a company called EF, which does a lot of like summer travel programs. It's a big international, I think, Swedish company. We're doing stuff for banks. We did stuff for a company called Yoyodyne, which was Seth Godin's company, which eventually got sold to Yahoo. And this guy, Eric Boyd, who was played blackjack with me, um, he eventually like went to go work for Yahoo, is now now runs a lot of the AI stuff at Microsoft. I mean, th- these were very, very smart people that were just at the beginning of the internet building, you know, web systems and, and whatnot. And, and, you know, I was sort of lucky enough to sort of be there with them learning how to program and learning how, you know, the, these systems worked and being able to sort of take that into some of the companies that I started. There are fun parallels between Bringing Down the House, the book about the MIT card counting team, and the Michael Lewis book, Moneyball. They both came out about the same time. They both popularized very dry topics. They both became movies. They're both about decision-making, and they were both like, yay, nerds. So when Jeff started working on sports in the mid-2000s, it was kind of a natural fit. I'd started a company called Circle Lending with a guy named Ashish Advani. Um, I had left that company because I was really passionate about wanting to work in sports. I actually interviewed for a stats internship position at the Boston Celtics under a guy by the name of Daryl Morey, who's gone on to do some amazing things, obviously, in sports. And the other person that was interviewing with me is this guy, Mike Zarin, who's become like really good, a really good friend of mine. And we talk about this being like a sliding doors moment for both of us because Daryl ended up choosing Mike over me. And um, I had to sort of figure out what I was going to do in my life at that point. And I decided I was going to go try to start my own consulting firm for teams and potentially agents to use analytics to make better decisions in what they were doing. And so again, if you think about this, this is 2003, really, because we didn't really get going with ProTrade until 2004. So in 2003, I was kind of like finding my way. Now, I didn't know anyone in sports, like nobody knew who I was, but I, you know, the book had come out. And so there was some level of understanding of who this MIT Blackjack team was, and people were like relatively interested in it. So I thought maybe I could use that notoriety to uh, work in sports. And so we started Pro Trade. Um, I was lucky enough to meet Mike Kearns. Mike was working in the baseball agent business at that time for a guy by the name of Jeff Morad. And they were evaluating different things in the world of sports. And one of the things they thought was this analytics movement was really interesting. And they needed to find a partner that could help them with the analytics movement. And, and sort of I was that person. Um, and so we started this company called Pro Trade. And um, we started to get into the world of analytics in sports in the mid 2000s, which was really, really early to be doing that. There wasn't a lot of people in the world doing that at the time. And we, you know, worked with teams at some level. So we worked with the Portland Trailblazers um, at the time. We worked with, you know, the 49ers to some degree at the time, although the 49ers were, were much more sophisticated um, than we were on their own. Um, but we, you know, we, we, you know, Bill Walsh was on our, in our an advisor to the company and he was very formative at the beginning and how we looked at analytics in the world of football and tried to take what was in his brain and translate it into an Excel spreadsheet. One way to describe the achievement of books like Moneyball is that there is this barrier that exists when you're trying to get people to buy into an idea. It's like an intuition barrier. And the more complicated something becomes, the less likely people are to abandon their intuition. 
when you're trying to communicate, let's say, a sports metric, like batting average on balls in play, the default position that most people will have is, sure, whatever, dude. But Moneyball or bringing down the house succeed at breaking down that intuition barrier. They accomplish that basic requirement of communication, which is to convince people, to get them to understand. I, I remember this meeting with Bill Walsh so well. It was, it was in his offices at Stanford, where he was still at Stanford at the time or had an office there. And we asked him, like, what does success look like? How many yards do you need to get on first and 10 for it to be successful? And he's like, I don't know, four or five yards. And at that time, we'd run some models and we believed that, like, success literally on first down was, you know, four and a half yards. And so I think we felt good that a lot of the math that we were doing mirrored what Bill Walsh had in his mind. Jeff was also working with a lot of the names that would become synonymous with sports analytics. I put together a really great group of advisors that were some of the people that were like at the forefront of analytics in the world of sports. So a guy that, by the name of Aaron Schatz, who started a website called Football Outsiders, he was part of that. A guy by the name of Roland Beach, who started a website called 82 Games, um, was part of it. A guy by the name of Ben Alomar, who was like early on just doing stuff in the world of analytics and sports. And, you know, like Nate Silver was someone that he was an advisor, but he was someone that I knew at the time that was doing analytics. So we were trying to create a, a group of people that knew how to do you know interesting stuff around analytics and also had a passion around sports. And then we, our primary job was not selling to teams, but we found that there was like you know kind of interesting work that we could do with teams that would help give us more credibility as a- analytics experts in the world of sports. So we would pitch different projects to you know um, the Portland Trailblazers, or we we did some work with Adidas back in the day to try to help them identify what players they wanted to pick to sponsor and whatnot um, based on the analytics. And, you know, we did some work around sort of like this decision-making within games, hopefully for different sports teams, like what they should be looking at. You know, I had conversations with Jerry West early on when he was still at the Memphis Grizzlies about ways to look at, you know, uh, different in-game strategies around sports. So it was very primitive, honestly. Like this is similar to like the conversation we had around card counting where the analytics around this stuff were not complicated at all. What it was more, much more about was implementation or getting teams to buy into to like leaning into this kind of stuff. Eventually, this idea Jeff had where he wanted to be in sports, but he was kind of throwing stuff against the wall to see what would stick. Well, that became an actual company called ProTrade. We eventually morphed it into a business called Citizen Sports which we then sold to Yahoo in 2008. What was interesting about that experience was this whole athlete stock market that we're trying to build was super complicated. And we weren't able to get a lot of adoption from users. Like we had thousands of users after spending like $15 million and having a ton of publicity around us, including like people like Jerry West and Troy Aikman and Steve Nash as, you know, um, you know, endorsers of what we were doing. And Michael Lewis wrote an article about like, there was just like a ton of advantage we should have had, but we couldn't build any real like audience because it was just too complicated. And then Facebook opened their platform and we had the opportunity to build a very simple app on Facebook called Red Sox Nation Yankees Faithful, which it was literally like took us five weeks to build. And it took a lot of convincing from some of the younger people in the business that, that this is what we should even build. 
And within launching that, like five weeks in, we had like a million and a half new users. And we were just like, wow, simple on these distributor platforms. That's what we needed to do when we pivoted the entire company to be about these different social media. And ultimately, we were the first, we had like sort of the first real successful iPhone sports app and one of the first real successful Android sports apps. And that was what we ended up selling um, to Yahoo. And Yahoo used that to sort of build out a lot of their social and mobile products. Um, and Mike Kearns, who I started the company with, went on to become a big executive at Yahoo and now is a really big success in the sports media world running TCG, which is the churning group. I think there is a part of me and probably Mike that believes that if the economy hadn't been in a different situation, we could have built pro trade citizen sports into something much more meaningful than what we did. The team that we had at that company was the best team that I have ever worked with. The people that were there have gone on to start companies, have gone on to be executive places. And it was just this incredible, incredible team incredible group of investors, the best group I've ever worked with. And, you know, we probably did uh, stop short of what our potential was, but it was a great event for almost everyone involved, meaning the investors, meaning the people that worked there. They all ended up getting great jobs and great opportunities at Yahoo. Yahoo was a rocket ship when they got there, meaning maybe not a rocket ship, but it was a I think it was like 14 as a stock and it went up to 40 and Mike and the team were tremendous reasons why that happened. And so much happened good out of that sale that it's hard for me to look back and say that, you know, we missed out. But I do think we'd never reached our full potential. Jeff's next company was also based on trying to pull value out of data. It was called 10Xer and it eventually sold to Twitter. I want to say it was a bad idea, meaning... It came from a bad place, meaning I really wanted to start my own company. I had started three before, but they were kind of all someone else's idea. And I was just kind of along for the ride. And for some reason, I really believed that I needed to start one kind of on my own. And in um, 10Xer, I didn't even have a co-founder. I literally just started this thing on my own. I had a, a good friend that kind of gave me some ideas and was on the board, but was non-operational. And I went and, and started this idea. And the idea was kind of around, you know, understanding human motivation around data. So there was this whole idea of, you know, could data be used if you tracked it about yourself to motivate you to better understand your own performance to help you improve? Like there's the analogy from sports where athletes know their own stats and they use those stats to motivate themselves and help them improve. Couldn't we do that in the world of work? Now, with all these different cloud-based systems that track our work, couldn't we use that to measure our own performance? And so that was kind of the premise behind it. The, the pivot in, pro, in, in 10Xer, which it wasn't a tremendous amount of pivot, but it was really around focusing on an area. So we focused on developers and, and programmers as a place that had a lot of data about it. Now, the challenge is, I think, that a lot of people don't believe that developers can be measured by metrics, and there was a lot of resistance to us doing that. And what we found as we got more and more into this world was that the problem that we were trying to solve wasn't really like a problem that small companies thought was important. It was really only a place that big enterprises thought was important. So we realized we were going to have to sell into big enterprises. One of the companies that we were going to sell into was Walmart Labs, like the people that build all of the tech for Walmart. And they were really interested in what we're doing. But we also realized that like we had no understanding or ability to sell into large enterprises. We'd never done it before. 
And so when we were given the opportunity to basically like join Twitter and sort of build a lot of these things there, and then I was going to, you know, kind of like launch a new career at Twitter, we just kind of realized that that was the right thing to do. I'm proud of like what happened at 10Xer, which was, you know, we were taking what was a very, very, you know, lofty goal, i.e. changing the way that people worked, changing the way that people were motivated, using analytics and data to do that. And um, recognizing that we were probably a little bit ahead of our time and creating a you know reasonable exit into a company that was incredibly important um, and and like using that as a way to like one give a great opportunity for the people that worked with me on that project and then ultimately putting myself into a role that um, you know kind of like changed my career to some degree from you know just an entrepreneur into someone that could work in a big tech company and could someone that used to just talk about analytics concepts and actually be able to implement them at a company like Twitter which was dealing with tremendous amounts of data This idea of using data to make decisions has been on Jeff's mind going back to his time as a card counter and I think it's super interesting because the challenges are so stubborn Let me just toss something out that I think is kind of funny Blackjack strategy has been solved for decades. Anyone in a casino can pull up a strategy chart and use it to play perfectly. And despite the fact that the answers are completely known, and these answers are also very easy to find, people play blackjack like shit. And not only do they play terribly, but they will do things like make the wrong decision and then say, you gotta play by the book. If you point out to them that the book doesn't actually call for standing on 15 against a 10, they will say, well, anyway, that's how I play. The thing they do not say is, oh, my mistake. I'm glad I know what the book says now. I'll make the right play in the future. When you stop to think how the human mind can work so that someone can know there's a book and they can claim to want to make decisions by the book and then they just ignore the book, it's like staring into the abyss. But that's a basic challenge when you're trying to convince someone of anything. Jeff has been trying to turn whatever you want to call it, data or knowledge or analytics into action for years. I always think about analytics as really three like layers. The first is data. It's like you talked about um, this whole concept of like sports and where sports was back in the, you know, mid 2000s. Well, one of the problems was there wasn't even data then. Like the data was just bad. The next level is the analytics. And obviously analytics is super important, but it, there is somewhat level of a commodity, meaning like even some of the most complicated models are using pretty simple concepts, just like Blackjack uses, you know, card counting as a pretty simple concept. The third level is really around implementation. And that's kind of like the key to all of this. And so my job is to bridge the analytics piece into the implementation piece and ultimately be the implementation piece, right? That like takes a lot of these concepts and can make them valuable or operationalize them in the real world. And so, yeah, I do take a lot of pride in being someone that can bridge the gap between the PhDs that are brilliant doing like the really hard analysis and the business owners that need to take the stuff and make it actionable and, and profit from it or create value from it. Figuring out the right answer, but then not taking any action is about like pedaling a bike with no chain. You're still going through all the effort you're just not getting anywhere. I mean, I'm not the most technical data scientist or analytics person in the world. Like the people that I worked with at Twitter were brilliant. Like they were PhDs in economics and from MIT and, you know, like neuroscientists and those types of things. 
there's a lot of value to that. I don't want to, I don't want to say that's not valuable. What my value was is being able to take that stuff and make it digestible, make it understandable and make it approachable. Right. And I think approachable is probably like the key word there because so much of the analytics movement has been not approachable, right? It's been, hey, this is complicated stuff. You couldn't understand it, but this is what it's telling you. And if you start a conversation with that, you're not going to get very far. There's also an interesting question in terms of where do analytics fit within the broader goal to look for opportunities? That's the whole point, right? That the data will tell you where you're missing out on value. And yet, obviously, there will be opportunities, sometimes big ones, where the analytics don't really help. To use an absurd example from sports, There is constant discussion about the fourth down decisions in NFL games, and obviously coaches can pick up some additional wins by making better decisions, but there are also ways to get edges that aren't reliant on fourth down models. The Patriots got caught taping their opponent's coaching hand signals, and then they were also accused of taping a Super Bowl walkthrough, although that part was never proven and the Patriots dispute it. But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where it seems like it could be a pretty big edge, and yet it could never come out of a spreadsheet. And while that might seem like a stupid example, there are analogies for that kind of thing in the stock market and also in advantage play. Real advantage players look at card counting and they're like, oh, what, your edge is like 2%? Like, what what the hell is that? Like, why are you wasting your time on that? So yeah, I mean, there's always bigger edges to be had than analytics. And like analytics at its core is really about small edges adding up to things in the end. I should say that the point I'm getting at here isn't at all a knock against analytics or small edges. It's more about the broader question. When should you focus on squeezing out that incremental edge? And when should you be thinking about value that can't come out of a spreadsheet? And ultimately, being an entrepreneur, um, especially at the early stages, is almost the opposite of being data-driven, right? Because there isn't data to solve. There, You don't have a lot of data early on. You don't have a lot of customers. And if you are doing something, to your point, that's transformational, There, it hasn't existed before and there's no way to do it. I mean, there's data that you can use to size how big the market could ultimately be. There's, there's, there's data that you could use to analyze early experiments on what you're doing. So there's ways to be data-driven, but ultimately being an entrepreneur is much more about faith than data. It's much more about a vision and much more about like, some strange stubbornness to do something that no one else has done before. And and so I do think there is a little bit of like juxtaposition or almost like conflict by of being data driven versus being an entrepreneur. Jeff has to be in the running for having the longest, coolest, weirdest resume. He's been a professional gambler, a corporate speaker, he's done sports analytics, founded small tech companies, been an executive at big tech companies. He's done hits on ESPN as a talking head, and he hosts a podcast with former guests of this show, Rufus Peabody. Jeff's last gig was at Microsoft, but he says that he's not exactly sure what he wants to do next. In terms of like figuring out what I want to do next, I think, you know, yes, I I left Microsoft in in the fall and it was a job I really enjoyed. And, you know, it, it was a job that I think like, you know, like, in many ways, like was a, was a really interesting journey, would have been a really interesting journey for me. But as I think about like, what to do next, I'm really thinking about like, what do I want to spend my time on in my, you know, next 10 to 15 years? What do I want my kids to see me spending my time on? How do I want them to see me, you know, be motivated or be, you know, functioning in a job or be, 
what what are they what do I want them to see my relationship with work to be like you know like what what kind of like legacy do I want and and ultimately like you know like I I'm motivated by a lot of like what I'm working on what problem I'm solving and I want to work on something that I find interesting something that has potentially really big upside from an impact standpoint it doesn't have to necessarily be from a financial standpoint but from an impact statement standpoint and I want it to be with people that I really enjoy for me it's really about like meeting people and talking to people and kind of like understanding what's important to you and then you know like people ask me all the time like what what are you really looking to do next and the problem is I don't have a great answer to that beyond like the answer that I gave you in terms of like the things that I want to spend time on or the things that I'm passionate on or the people I want to be around. I'm not what you would consider to be like a traditional advantage player where I want to like find the hole in the system and exploit it, right? I think in sports betting, maybe there's a little bit of that for me, but in general, in life, that's not necessarily it. It, it definitely for me, what fuels me is like working with really good people and building something with really good people. Like I value the relationships and the friendships that I've made in my professional career and the moments in time where we've had to be, we've had successes and we've reflected back on those successes. Like the people that I've worked with in the past, if I see them, I just turned 50 and I had a 50th birthday and there was a bunch of people from my previous life that kind of came back to, you know, celebrate with me. And that was very meaningful to me. So I think like the idea of building something with smart people, I get a lot of joy out of like recruiting people that to come work on things with me and then having those successes and being able to celebrate them with people. You can probably hear that being the MIT blackjack guy has been a good thing for Jeff's career. It's always nice to have an in so that people are ready to listen to the next thing that comes out of your mouth. There, there wasn't like a seminal moment where I felt like my life changed. I kind of joke like if I'm giving a speech and someone wants to take a picture with me, I always like laugh and say to them, you know, when you take this picture and then if you show it to someone, you're literally going to have to explain who I am. And it's not like you're taking a picture with like, you know, Joe Montana and you're like, oh my God, that's cool. It's Joe Montana. So you're like, there, there's, this isn't, you know, very niche audience that knows who I am. Um, yeah. I mean, I think over time people have like, you know, more and more people have known about it and known about the story. And so that's like, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's interesting. And like, I, I think I enjoy meeting people that take an interest in the story and want to know things about it. But at some point, like, I don't, I don't need to talk about myself or the story any more than I already have. The concept of MIT and blackjack is like a chef's kiss. Perfect meme. It takes our idea of what a gambler should look like and flips that upside down and also undermines any preconceived notion we might have about achievers. Then, even while it's subverting our expectations, it's also somehow so on the nose that it borders cliche. Math kids, counting cards, beating casinos. I think it's powerful because of the way it pushes and pulls on our brains. And since one of the themes of this episode is the question, how do you convince people? How do you communicate information? And ultimately, how do you get ideas to spread? You have to give a lot of credit to the writer of the book, Ben Mesrick, and to Jeff for the way that the idea hits our brains. Like, I know that there are people out there that believe that we get way too much, and me specifically, gets way too much credit for any of this, right? And I would be the first one to agree with them because I don't think I deserve very much credit on this at all. I was a MIT student card counter, like, that was probably just as good or bad as most of the people that played blackjack. 
I think the 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 way that you know Ben and I crafted this into a story that later got turned into a movie, and you know that what became very interesting from a cultural relevance standpoint is the interesting thing, right? And ultimately, I think what I've been able to do is is hopefully represent it in a way that does it justice and makes it more interesting and keeps it mainstream and approachable. There are basically two well-known cultural references to card counting. There's the scene in Rain Man and the movie 21. So per the movies, the people with enough mental horsepower to count cards are one, an autistic savant, and two, MIT whiz kids. I asked Jeff about this, and he said that actually he tries to dispel the notion that you need to be a genius to count cards. Largely, whenever I've ever talked to people about it, I always tell them like, it's something I could teach you in 45 minutes. Like we could sit down and I could teach you how to do it. You wouldn't be able to play in a casino yet. You'd have to practice and practice and practice. But I'm a big advocate in saying that there's nothing complicated about it. It's not rocket science. You don't have to be, uh, you know, like, I, and I even say this in the speeches I do, you know, you don't have to be Rain Man to do it. Like it, it's, it's especially what we did which is the simplest form, you know, high, low, you're basically just tracking cards and, you know, counting plus minus one. So if you can add one to any number or subtract one from any number and do basic division and multiplication, you're good. It, it, I, I definitely would never say that I am any sort of like brilliant mathematician because of my ability to play blackjack. And I've, you know, I've said it many times, like I could teach anyone how to do it in 45 minutes. You just need to go practice and practice and practice, which is ultimately why I think it's such a cool thing because it's like anything else to be really good at it. You just need, it needs to be hard work to get good at it. Earlier, I said that the idea of MIT and blackjack is a perfect meme that has helped the story spread. I think the way the movie was sensationalized also probably helped a lot. 21 is a total popcorn flick. I have half a dozen card counting books on my bookshelf, and every one is more of a snooze than the next. They're filled with equations and tables. They have names like the theory of blackjack. I'm getting bored just describing them, but there's none of that in 21. 21 is about the Bellagio fountains and strippers and high roller suites and stacks of cash and Kate Bosworth and an MIT professor that kind of talks like he's in the mafia. Although, if this sensationalism made it so that people would watch the movie, it also meant that in some places, the movie diverged from the real story. For instance, in the movie, the leader of the Blackjack team was played by Kevin Spacey, and he gives it the full Kevin Spacey. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you can imagine. But Jeff says that the real leader of the MIT team, a guy named John Chang, he wasn't like that. I think you're familiar with John Chang. I mean, John was super formative in, in our time. You know, like he taught all of us and was like very much a mentor all of us um, as it pertains to Blackjack. So I had I had like dinner with John and Lori maybe like, I don't know, three months ago. And it was like, it was awesome, right? Because like, I hadn't seen them in so long. And like, you know, since the book and movie came out, there's just been a lot of like, not weirdness, but like, you know, like, like my ability to shape anything that happened in the book or movie or very, very, very little. So and, you know, like the portrayal that of John as sort of this, you know, like evil professor or whatever, it's like so untrue, right? And so to be able to hang out with them and, and chat with them was awesome. There are casinos now in almost every state, and there's a new generation of card counters going after these places. One thing that I think is cool about these people is that they have very much a hard hat mentality. They understand that the job is go play, get kicked out live on the road, sometimes sleep in truck stops, drive to the next place, get kicked out again, 
and so on. And some of these people are actually blue collar card counters. I heard a story where a guy had been a welder and then learned to count cards. Jeff's story isn't the only way that someone would discover card counting, but the movie 21 is definitely one of the things that funnels people into advantage play. So if we're talking about his blackjack legacy, he was part of a storied team of card counters whose exploits happened 20 plus years ago, but just the retelling of the story is making life difficult for pit bosses and surveillance rooms to this day. If you learn how to count cards well, you have a gift, right? Like you have like a, you're one of the few people that gets to go into a casino and have a positive EV experience with the casino, right? Like people used to always ask me, you know, when you go to a casino, like when do you know when to stop? And the reality is like, you don't stop, right? Like you have a positive EV game. And so why would you ever stop if you didn't need to, because you were tired or because you were getting burnt out or because like they were recognizing you and to be able to go into a casino Okay, and like a welder or anyone, you know, like that, that, you know, like that is awesome. Like having them go in with a positive expected value against the casino, knowing that they have 1% or 2% against the casino versus it being the other direction. If I've done that at all for anyone, that's amazing. And I feel great about that. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Jeff Ma for taking the time for this episode. As a reminder, I've started a newsletter as another way to stay in touch with listeners. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. As always, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Half Kelly.